Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest on this week's episode is John Walker, Business Development Manager at EOS North America. EOS provides 3D printing solutions, including systems, software, materials, and services. John spoke on a panel last week during ACG Chicago's Middle Market Manufacturing Conference, and we met there to talk about 3D printing and additive manufacturing. While traditional manufacturing techniques involve cutting away at a material, additive manufacturing is a digital process that lets you build something up from scratch through layers to make a three-dimensional object. John explains some of the reasons why additive technologies are catching on, including the ability to make parts that weigh less and a chance to create things we don't even know how to make yet. One of the most interesting things to me was when John talked about why the adoption of additive technologies is so strong in the United States and why he sees it as the great equalizer for American manufacturers as they compete with international players. I found this conversation fascinating, and I hope you do too. Here's my interview with John Walker. John, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So to start, can you give an overview of EOS and your role there? Sure. So EOS is one of the early pioneers for 3D printing, as it was called. And we are also one of the main drivers towards additive manufacturing. And that's going to be the change from 3D printing being mainly a prototyping technology into becoming a widely accepted production technology. Um, So my current role there is business development. Um, So actually at EOS North America, that's part of the strategy department. So we are a completely separate function from sales. So like a lot of the accounts I personally work with also have like a separate sales team that handle them. And we're looking at a lot of the most future facing applications and really trying to understand three years out, five years out, things like that. Where are the areas that we need to be successful? And then what do we need to be successful in those applications? So it's a lot of identifying gaps and then trying to come up with some solutions that hopefully take shape by the time that's like a accepted use for the technology. Hmm. And can you talk about how 3D printing and additive manufacturing differ from more traditional manufacturing techniques? Yeah, sure. So before I got into 3D printing via EOS, I spent about 10 years in the subtractive world. Um, so no CNC machining for general production very well, and then also uh, specifically equipment relating to the mold and dye industry. So the biggest difference is with traditional manufacturing, now dubbed subtractive manufacturing, you put a large hunk of material in a system and a machine, whether it be, uh, you know, mostly aluminum steels, but you could also do some plastic machining. And then you had somebody write a computer program um, in a CAD system convert it with CAM into a program that would be a toolpath, and then a cutting tool would actually come in and shape this big block of material down into your finished workpiece. Versus with additive manufacturing, it's truly a digital process, and as much as a lot of the trends in business we hear right now, like AI and things like that, is an example of 3D printer um, and the software that enables you to 3D print will figure out a lot of the paths for you, like how the laser should move, how it should melt the powder, Um, how the support structure should be generated if it's a metal system and then obviously still can't replace good experience so if you have operators that are very experienced or technical experts you know they can go in and fine-tune the machines and the build processes but generally additive is going to take 
um, some form of raw feedstock material and then layer by layer fuse that feedstock material together to make a three-dimensional object. And what's driving the use of this technology? Why use these techniques versus a, a subtractive approach? Yeah, so there's at a high level five or six different pillars that are really driving people towards additive manufacturing. Um, and a lot of them came from prototyping and understanding the technology there first. So the first use would be lightweighting. There's a lot of things that could be a lot lighter if they weren't hindered by the manufacturing techniques. So that's probably the best example. And that's the main reason why aerospace um, and the general space and satellite industry, rockets for profit, uh, that kind of new industry are huge drivers for additive manufacturing right now because there's such a penalty associated with weight in those industries that every additional pound you can save has a direct correlation to cost savings and fuel. Huge driver. Um, the next one is mass customization. A lot of things look the way they do because it's much easier to produce a million of the same parts than a million different parts. But if we think about our usage, no two people generally use the same product the exact same way. Um, if you think about something digital that's really easy to edit, might be like your smartphone home screen. Every single person on earth probably has their home screen configured differently. What op apps are docked? What ones are in the top? Do you make folders? Don't you make folders? Things like that. So additive would enable that sort of customization level to finished products. As a great example, we did a project in Germany with BMW that ended up in their mini brand. You can go online to miniyours.com. You can customize the blinker, the side scuttle, and the glove box cover, and you can add your name, different text, color. Then at the end of the day, Mini gets all of the orders in-house. They load the job files into their machine, and then they print all these custom unique components. Then uh, two to three days later, customers get them in the mail, basically. So it's a really good application. So if you think about the medical space, this type of customization is a huge driver for the adoption of additive in medical because no two people are shaped the same. So long term, the goal would be, you know, if you needed a hip replacement, um, or maybe dental work type of thing. We're going to use the existing medical scanning technology today, create a 3D representation of your body, and then 3D print the replacement part. And that's essentially what the medical space will probably evolve into. I heard hearing aids too was another yeah. interesting application. Yeah, exactly. That's actually... So the term 3D printing is actually like a box of different technologies, not any different than we say subtractive. There's a box of technologies in there. So I believe it's SLA technology, which isn't a type of machinery that EOS makes. So I'm not too familiar with that application, um, but I'm pretty sure that the SLA market um, has done a lot with hearing aids and they've also done a lot with the external braces, um, you know, like uh, Smile Direct and Invisalign. I don't know specific, but I believe those two customers are heavily invested in SLA technology. And that's the same concept to get a mold of your mouth made then 3D printing allows them very easily to create a representation of your mouth, um, biocompatible, so you can you know sleep with it in, and that's how those braces work. Huh, interesting. Yeah. In our world, we've done a lot. Um, our metals technology is really popular. We have a couple grades of biocompatible titanium that's 3D printable. Um, so a good example is trauma. Um, in one of our older slide decks that we don't show too often, there's a cancer patient that had like pelvic bone issues. I don't know specifically like the type of um, medical issue, but they basically went in with the surgery and cut somebody's pelvic bone in half. But because they had a medical image of the pelvic bone, they're able to recreate the half that needed to be replaced in 3D printed titanium 
and then attach a hip to that and then connect your leg to it and basically rebuilt um, half of a person, um, you know, in their midsection. So that's a very future-facing technology. If you look at sports, this is the example I'm waiting for. Some star billion-dollar athlete like LeBron James goes down. And why, if LeBron needs a knee replacement or something, like why would LeBron get a stock off-the-shelf knee replacement if a better, if LeBron can get LeBron's knee and extend his career five years, why not? Um, so that's in my, if I have to predict, I think in like the next five years, there's going to be some crazy example like that that's going to get a ton of exposure for our industry. And to what extent is additive manufacturing replacing traditional techniques yeah, versus so complementing them? Generally speaking, additive is probably going to be more of a complementary technology. I mean, every year material costs come down, people's understanding of where to how to use the technology increases, uh, the speeds of the machines get faster, and then more companies have them and are selling parts as a service. So every year, there's more and more opportunities for additive to take over for subtractive. But I still think, generally speaking, they're going to be complementary technologies. So I mentioned a couple minutes ago, there's some different pillars like lightweighting, um, Mass customization is two of the main reasons you'd want to look at 3D printing. Another one is just impossible geometries. So there's a lot of things that we know we want to make, but we don't quite know how to make them. Um, and the more and more that people get comfortable embracing what's impossible today that isn't impossible tomorrow, that's really going to drive a lot of additive manufacturing as well. And once people think differently, um, that's when additive really has the potential to take over more from the subtractive market. But generally speaking, you're always going to, if it's a metal part, you're always probably going to need to go in and like drill and tap a hole or thread it depending on the tolerances. Or if you had a mating surface, you may need to machine that. Or depending on the um, expectation of surface finish, you might need to go in and clean that up um, and, and that plastic. I guess if I had to guess too, plastic um, could be much, much more disruptive to that industry in the sense that you know, a lot of injection molded parts that come out don't need to be post-processed. So if you can get the surface finish on a 3D printer, you know, closer and closer to an injection molded surface finish, and then also get the throughput so that it's more closely aligned with injection molding, the break-even point from when it makes sense to shift from 3D printing to making a hard tool and going to injection molding, that break-even point is uh, a moving target all the time as well. Like right now, we're almost always going to win under 5,000 parts. Somewhere between 5,000 parts and 10,000 parts, 3D printing should win, but it really gets down to like a cost and complexity kind of thing. And then once we get past 10,000 parts at the current moment, uh, injection molding is usually going to win. But there's some new technologies we've shown like laser profusion, which is our concept car for the industry. Um, but basically, instead of having two lasers melting the plastic together in our plastic systems, you're going to have 980,000 smaller diode lasers instead of two high-powered. Um, so that allows you to make a new layer of material every three seconds, and that's like 10 times faster as we calculate it than our P396, which is our current mid-frame size machine. So if you can imagine going 10 times faster and the current break-even point is 5,000 parts, instantly we should be at 50,000 parts. And now that's a lot of volume. Once that technology launches, that's going to be a huge step forward. 
we hear a lot about where U.S. manufacturers stand relative to their international competitors, and there's concern that they're not investing to the same degree in technology. Sure. Where do U.S. manufacturers stand in terms of additive technologies compared with their international counterparts? Yeah, so 3D printing uh, is the great equalizer, actually. Hmm. So my background, I mentioned a little earlier, is in CNC machinery. And if you were to pull a company like Haas or Mazak or really well-known, you know, CNC provider, there's some crazy figure, um, and it's really close to about 50% of the world's machine tools are consumed by China. So you figure like you pull, you know, all the thousands of CNC machines that are made a month. If, you know, if the global market capacity, say, was 5,000 a month, 2,500 of those end up in China. Wow. Like that's really staggering. Yeah. And the difference is, is that a lot of the industries that additive best caters to are all of the industries um, in North America that have really survived a lot of the offshoring. So there's this perfect synergy. So where I'm going with this is that by contrast, the United States is the number one market for industrial grade 3D printers. Um, and the reason being aerospace. Aerospace survived a lot of the offshoring. Aerospace is the number one application really for industrial grade 3D printing. So there's perfect uh, harmony there, you know, between those two things. Medical, same story, um, you know, heavily regulated, things like that. It's not an industry that's that susceptible to offshoring um, to like Asia. And additive works really well in the medical industry. So again, another perfect marriage where it stays here. Uh, the next one would be automotive. And that one, there's still a bit of a gap between hitting their cost per part targets and their volume. But the automotive industry is going through a revolution right now, um, led by the case technology. So case is connected, autonomous, S is for ride sharing, and the E is for electrification. Mm -hmm. So those four technologies are drastically changing the way the automotive industry looks. And if you think about it, like people have been producing cars in the US now for over a hundred years. So if you needed a crankshaft or a piston, there's a supply chain that has existed for a hundred years. They know exactly how to make a uh, piston. They know exactly how to make it at a high volume. And there's been so many waves of cost outing that that thing is to the penny, the least expensive that piston can be. But if we look at an electric vehicle, there's all sorts of new challenges that nobody's ever thought of before. Mm -hmm. There's no supply chain. So all of a sudden it's the perfect use case for additive within the auto industry because the volumes are lower. Okay. You know, Ford makes a million trucks a year, F-150s. I don't know exactly how many electric vehicles they sell, but say they have three, four models. I bet the unit sales are 50 to 100,000 spread over those. So now we're kind of getting to volumes that make sense for 3D printing. Hmm. And then we're facing new challenges. How do we extend a battery life? Maybe the answer to that is cooling. And then maybe there's some way to design a 3D printed part that would enable better cooling to give you better battery life. And that part could only be made um, with the design freedom of 3D printing. Hmm. So those are three good examples um, of why additive is so strong here in the U.S. And then I think the last one, going back to prototyping as well, is that even if you do offshore your parts, most of the R&D is still done here in the States. So it makes sense that at least, you know, every big blue chip Fortune 500 company that produces physical parts is going to have, you know, a small bank somewhere, a center of excellence within their R&D department that's going to have a lot of 3D printers. Mm -hmm. And so for a company that wants to introduce additive technologies into its operations, what's the best place to get started? Are they contracting that out? Are they going out and buying printers and getting that set up internally? Uh, I mean, I would say selfishly, your best bet is actually to probably talk to a machine manufacturer. 
um, and kind of work with somebody like an EOS and get some feedback, trying to understand your goals and what makes sense. And then through those discussions, I think it's pretty quick to outline, you know, does it make sense for you to invest in a machine internally or does it make sense? And then we could connect you to, you know, people with our equipment selling parts as a service. There's no, I guess, one right answer for that. But the nice thing is that both of those are options, you know, to buy a, a system, do training, learn how to run the system, how to apply it to your business and start up. Or you can do a lot of that and learn where and how to use the technology. But if it doesn't make sense to invest in the capital, there's no shortage of, you know, systems. We're recording this in Chicago right now, um, just in the Chicago metropolitan area, Chicagoland, as we like to call it locally. There are six EOS metal printers. I'm trying to count really quickly. I didn't plan, but it's say if we go up as far as like uh, Milwaukee, you know, so within say a 90 minute drive of here, there's probably 12 to 15 plastic systems. Hmm. Um, we've got three plastic systems right here within the city limits of Chicago. So there's no shortage, um, believe it or not, to get, you know, high end parts made. And are large automotive or aerospace companies putting pressure on their suppliers to adopt some of this technology? Yeah, so that's probably one of the biggest gaps in the market right now. And it's one of those things, you know, listen to this again in six months or a year and see how things have changed. So right now, there's kind of a divide. And you have, you know, the OEMs that own the technology have been doing the R&D in the technology and are developing, you know, their given production widget. And then for people that need general parts made as a service, you know, we have what we would just call our service provider network. But a company that truly understands additive manufacturing at a high level and understands contract manufacturing, that's where there's a little bit of the gap in the market right now. Um, so if I'm a aerospace OEM and I want to outsource and get, you know, 5,000, um, you know, titanium widgets made for my aircraft, your traditional supply chain may not have you know, enough 3D printers to give you 5,000 parts. Um, so those kind of get sprinkled around the traditional additive service provider network. But I think as more and more of these productions contracts get released, a lot of kind of blue chip contract manufacturers, a company like Jabil as example, is very interested in the space, but they don't have, you know, within their network, they do not have the same number of 3D printers, say, as they do injection molding machines. But that dial is going to change every year as there's more and more opportunities for them to get into the technology. And once that happens, it's just going to be this constant evolution of, uh, you know, supply and demand kind of battling back and forth. So right now, I think the demand is a little bit higher than the supply of, you know, really high-end contract manufacturers. At some point, that's going to tip and go the other way where there's probably more capacity than there is demand. And then that's going to probably lower some costs, obviously, and then in, uh, expose more companies or entice more companies to look at 3D printing that hadn't looked at it before. And you've mentioned a few already, but are there particular materials that are well suited for 3D printing? And are there any that like you just can't use? Yeah, so um, that's complicated, actually. And it differs too as well. EOS um, is one of only two companies that plays both in the metal space and the plastic space. Most companies are very, you know, like surgical strike focused on like we're just a metals company or we're just a plastics company. We have both. Um, and there are some nuances between the technologies. Metals is a cold process. So the powder is not heated up. The laser just comes in and does all the melting of the powder. It's basically a welding process. 
on the plastic systems, you actually heat the whole system up right below the material's melt point, and then the laser comes in and is very low-powered laser compared to the metals laser, and just does that last little bit of melting of the powder together, and that actually gives you your part geometry. So because there are nuances, even though at high level both systems are powdered material and lasers, you have some nuances into like why there's material limitations in either platform. So as an example, on the metals side, um, we want materials with low carbon content as an example. And a lot of companies want higher carbon content steels for certain applications. And when you put too much carbon in our process, it gets too much stress. And then you can get micro cracking. So as an example, an interesting thing is our meraging steel is 0.05% carbon. And a very common material that we'd say is a low carbon steel like an H13 is 0.5%. So they're both under one, but they're still, you know, a whole decimal place different um, and, you know, in terms of the carbon content. But where I say it's always evolving, like if you, we record this podcast, you put it out and you reviewed it in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, about every six months, something that I'm telling you isn't possible today changes. Mm. I mean, the world is changing that fast in 3D printing. So we've said for 30 years, that's how long EOS has been in business, we're not going to do H13. Um, I just you know, highlighted the material limitations there. H13 is coming to market next month. Um, so that's how dynamic it is. But again, that's at a high level, a really good example. On the polymer side, a lot of it has to do with um, kind of three factors. So on the metal side, the first checkpoint is, is it weldable? So if the material is weldable, it could be done in our technology. Then it gets into a question of what are your finished part qualities. So for EOS to launch material, it always has to be about 99.9 or 100% dense, 99% dense. Maybe we could get to 96% dense because of the material. And then we have to get into a discussion of, is that good enough for your application? If we're replacing a casting, it probably is. If we're replacing a forged titanium aerospace component, it's probably not. Um, and so understanding the application is really important to saying like if a material is good or bad because it could be good for one application and bad for another. On the polymer side, um, some of the challenges are melt points. Um, there's so many different you know melt points in the plastic world. And every time, say the system goes up, I'm going to use slightly kind of nominal generic numbers, but every time we have to add, say, 50 degrees of C. So if we went from like 150 to 200 and then 200 and 250 C is the melt point that system can do, the cost to build the system goes up extremely high due to the increased um, heat resistance you need in all the componentry and the lasers and everything. So that kind of limits somewhat um, what the technology. So we have a 300C system in the market, but it's significantly more expensive than a similar system that melts at like 200C. So one of the first checkpoints is, you know, what's the melt point of the system? The next one is how well does the powder flow? Because um, plastic powder can absorb moisture, um, humidity and things can affect it. So how well is it actually just going to, is the machine going to be able to automatically feed the powder into the build chamber? Um, so that's a big factor. And the third one is outgassing. Uh, that's a problem in injection molding as well that you deal with with venting. But if a certain material gets really cloudy and a lot of gases come out of it, it makes it very hard to build inside the plastic systems. We'll have to have you back in six or 12 months yeah. to talk about how space sure. has changed in the interim. John, thanks for joining me on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. 
Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.